My name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. It is a pleasure uh, for us that you chose to worship uh, with us today. And today we're going to be talking about the concept of grace. Uh, grace is one of those things that is so and so good that it's so hard to even believe that it's true. The concept of grace is so amazing that it can only come from God. Grace is so powerful that if we truly grasp it, not only it saves you, but it transforms you and it motivates you and equips you and empowers you. Grace is so necessary, so crucial, so important that we cannot afford to forget it. And that's why today we're going to talk about the practice, did we put that already? The practice of the means of grace. And for that, we're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to ask you to stand, please, for the reading of God's word um, as a sign of reverence to him and his word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you're still here, can you please say, I'm here. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit of who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How about we read verse 8 together? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one may boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray again. Lord, we just declare beautiful things as we were worshiping. We just remember the victory that you already accomplished by your death and resurrection. We already, uh, already encountered the Spirit to put it in our way because we are being reminded and we celebrate what you already accomplished. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk about grace, you open up our minds and give us understanding that you affect our hearts and affections. Not only so we understand better what grace is, but so we are transformed by it. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church says? Amen. You can take a seat. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to look at the person next to you, and you got to say this. You have no idea how much grace you need. Go ahead. I got to say that you guys are like the worst people to follow instructions. I give you one sentence and it takes forever. Today we're going to talk about two things. The what and the why of grace. And the what and the why of the means of grace. And this is going to be kind of a quick intro to this topic. 
Because we got to get to the best part of the, the entire morning. Um, let's talk about the white and the white of grace. Um, the text which is read is the, you could say, the most, uh, one of the most important passages for us to fully understand when we talk about the concept of the grace of God. And what I'm going to show you is that when we talk about the grace of God, you cannot separate the concept of the grace of God from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually, what I'm about to show you in a second is that to believe in the grace of God is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to believe that he died, he lived, died, and resurrected. That these two concepts, the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus, are inseparable. This is why Paul, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, calls the gospel the gospel of grace. Now, Paul, which is the person that wrote this letter, wants to make sure that we don't separate these two things. And that's why in verses 8 and 9, he gives us a summary of the gospel of grace. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, that by works, not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice what it says. No one gets to brag about your conversion. No one gets to brag that you became a Christian. No one gets to say that it was because of my good works and my obedience and because even I accepted the Lord that I became a Christian. Notice that Paul says that it is the grace of God. It is a gift from God. It is the gift of salvation. It tells you that in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, not only you have been forgiven and accepted, but that you have granted an intimate relationship with God and eternal life. Granted. Notice that it doesn't say that it is our faith that saves us, but it is our faith in Jesus, what saves us? That even our faith is just an instrument God uses for our salvation. Notice that he says that our salvation was God's idea, not our idea. Salvation is by grace alone. Now, Tim Keller argues that even though this concept of grace, a lot of people have heard of it, a lot of people believe in it, and a lot of people are attracted to it, he argues that even though people have that, the only way you experience transforming grace is when three things come together. That we understand that grace is free, that grace is free, that we understand that grace is indispensable, and that we understand that grace is costly. Free, indispensable, and costly. Verses 4 and seven, show us why grace is free. Look at what Paul says, that the only reason why someone becomes a Christian is because of the great love of God and the rich mercy of God. Notice that he says that grace is free because God chose to love you if you're a Christian. That the reason why anybody comes to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ is because God has a benevolent heart. He chose to love you. He didn't have to love you. He chose to love you. Jonathan Edwards argues that part of the reason why we receive the love of God is because there was so much love within the Trinity that the Trinity itself wanted to give us what they already had. Notice, though, that it says that the love of God is not just an emotional love. It's a merciful love. It's a God that refuses to give the offender what the offender deserves. It's a merciful love. 
The gift, the grace of God is free because it comes from the loving heart of God and the merciful heart of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't work for it. Not only that, verse 7 tells us that the reason why grace is free is because it comes from the kindness of God. It talks about the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. The word kindness there is the same word that is used for good. Meaning that the only reason why anybody becomes a Christian is because God is good. Once again, you didn't earn it, you didn't look for it, you didn't purchase it, you didn't work for it. The only reason why anybody becomes a Christian is because God is good. And because he is good, whatever he gives you, allows or brings, is for your good. Even if we don't agree with it. See, God is completely selfless. There's nothing you could give God. There's no reason why God had to save you. He didn't save you because he needed your worship. I hope you know that there's thousands and thousands of angels worshiping God all the time. The creation worships better than, than the way we worship. God didn't save you because he needed anything from you. God saved you because he's a selfless, loving, merciful, and good God. Did you know that that's one of the differences between humanity and God? We don't know how to be selfless. I mean, we try, but we just can't. You know how I know that? Because whenever we do something for somebody else, if the person doesn't say thank you, in our hearts we say something like, what an ungrateful person. <laughs> Isn't that what you go through? That's what I go through. Our God is not like that. Our God extends his grace because he's loving, kind, and good. God does not expect anything in exchange. God does what he does because he's good. And the reason why we behave and the reason why we respond and the reason why we repent is because love awakens love. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says that you got to do something to earn God's love. Christianity says you do things for God because he loved you first. Now, that's good. But that's, a, that's an incomplete definition of the grace of God if you only think that it's free. You also need to understand that it's indispensable. Look at verse 5. God made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in our transgressions. Can you say dead? It is by grace you have been saved. Notice the phrase, dead in our transgressions. Listen up, people. This is brand new information. Do you know what the word dead means? Dead. It doesn't mean that you were sick and needed to get better. It doesn't mean that we were spiritually sick and we needed Dr. God. It tells you that we were so spiritually dead that God had to save us. So indispensable is the grace of God that he had to save us. We were so um, slaves of our own sin that we were dead, spiritually dead. The question is why? Well, Paul is going to answer that in verse 2 and later on in verse 3. He says that part of the reason why we are dead in our sins is because we have three enemies going against us. Number one, we're dead because we used to live in the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Notice that he says that we have been affected and infected by two things. By the ways of the world, the world, and by Satan. Let's talk about the first one of those. He tells you 
that the reason why we are sinful is because sin is contagious. It tells us that part of the reason why we were dead in our sins and transgressions is because we have been affected and infected by our surroundings, that we are the product of our history, society, and family, that we are not just the product of your decisions, people, that you have been infected and affected by everything that has been part of our lives, number one, and number two, that we have also been affected and infected by Satan himself, the ruler of the kingdom. This is interesting about Satan, though. He uses what is already outside in the world, and he also uses what is already in your heart. He does not bring anything you don't like, you know. He uses the things that you struggle with already. This is the reason why no one in this room and nobody worshiping with us and like you say, the devil made me do it. No, no, no. You did it because you wanted to. You know how I know that? Because we have the world as the enemy, Satan as the enemy, and yourself as the enemy. All of us also lived, past, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desire, our des its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Super interesting because it says that what the devil uses is our own flesh, our own hearts that wants to gratify the cravings of our flesh, our desires and thoughts. You know what's interesting about that? That that verse tells you that you were dead in your sins not just because you did wrong things, you know. Listen up, church. You were dead in your sins not just because you broke the commandments. The text tells you that you were dead in your sins because you also took the good things that God gives to replace God. We use the gifts of God to replace God. Why do I say that? Because that's the word that is used there for craving, epithomia. Is when we use the good things that the Lord gives you to push God to the side and raise functional saviors. From that perspective, every single one of us deserve the wrath of God. That's why no one in this room can boast about anything, you know? That's why no one in this room can say that I'm a better sinner than the other person. That's why we all have to acknowledge that the reason why we sin is because we love sin. We love, to, uh, uh, we love to gratify the desires of our flesh. See, as Christians, we have this weird relationship with sin. We both hate it and love it at the same time. Do you know why you sin? It's not because of your spouse. It's not because of your friends. It's not because of your kids. It's not because of your coworkers. Do you know why you sin? Because you love your sin. You don't do the things that you don't love. Can you see why the grace of God was so indispensable? Not only it was free, but indispensable. If the free grace of God does not intervene, not only we will continue to be slaves to ourselves, but we will go from bad to worse. If the grace of God does not intervene, not only we will destroy ourselves, but we will destroy everybody else that we love. If the grace of God does not intervene, 
Not only we will continue to sin against ourselves, but we'll continue to sin against him and accumulate condemnation. See, if the grace of God does not intervene, we will deserve the wrath of God. Now, that's important for you to understand. The grace is free and the grace is indispensable. But because we deserve the wrath of God as sinners. Now, by the way, let me just pause here. If you think that your sins are not that bad, I just want you to remember that every single one of your sins is against a holy God. Every one of our sins is cosmic sins because we sin against a cosmic God. Therefore, grace needs to be more than free and more than indispensable. Grace needs to be costly. Notice what it says, that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In theology, that is called union with Christ, meaning... That we, as Christians, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, not only you die with Jesus and resurrected with Jesus, not only you were forgiven and accepted, but you were given a brand new nation, a brand new person. But if that is true, and the Bible says it is, at the same time, it also means that Jesus was united to you in your sin and condemnation. This explains why grace is costly. Because the only way for God to forgive you and forgive me and forgive us is if Jesus would pay the price. It was costly because he had to become a human being. It was costly because he had to empty himself of all glory. It was costly because he, hid, he needed to become a nobody. It was costly because he experienced everything that we have experienced. It was costly because he was humiliated, rejected, suffering in our place. It was costly because he had to bleed it was costly because we, for a fragment of time he lost communion with the Father. It was costly because he exchanged the cup of wrath so we could receive the cup of blessing. Costly. This is not cheap grace. Costly grace. The only way the concept of grace transforms you is when you take those three. Free indispensable, and costly. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world in which God demands punishment and God himself takes the punishment? It's all grace. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that offers salvation as a gift? You don't earn it, you don't work for it. It's all grace. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world in which the God that wants to save you doesn't, wait for you doesn't wait for you to go to him, but he comes to you in his son? It's all grace. The message of the gospel of grace is so and so radical, so and so central, so and so important, that not only that there's no salvation without grace, but there's no Christianity without grace. You have no idea how much grace you need every day. That's why you said it to one another, church. See, the grace of God shapes our identity. The grace of God transforms our behavior. 
The grace of God affects our holiness. The grace of God affects, uh, it gives us the strength to live. The grace of God motivates us to serve. The grace of God sustains us in suffering and difficulties. You cannot live without the grace of God. You can't survive without the grace of God. Because even though you are already saved in Jesus, you still crave for the wrong things. You haven't graduated from that department, you know? And this leads me to my second point. This is why we need the means of grace. So let's talk about the what and the why of the means of grace. I believe that the Bible uh, uses different uh, things to talk about the grace of God. So for testimonies and evidence of the grace of God, prayer is an evidence of the grace of God. Uh, uh, the word, of course, is the primary way in how God communicates his grace. But there are two practices that churches ought to practice, for lack of a better word, and that we got to take serious. And it's both baptism and communion. And before we participate in baptism, I want to give you a definition why these two means of grace are so important. Look at the definition I want to give you. The means of grace are visible and outward signs of inward and invisible grace that shapes the church. Now, you got to memorize that one, okay? The means of grace are visible and outward signs of inward and invisible grace that shapes the church. What I'm trying to say is this. Means of grace are the things we practice because we have already experienced the grace of God. But these are things that we also practice to be shaped by the grace of God. That's why baptism is so important. I want to give you three things about baptism. Listen, the Bible knows nothing about a Christian that is not baptized. If you are a Christian and you haven't get baptized yet, this is an invitation. Okay, maybe you didn't know. It's okay. Get baptized. But you have to take it serious. Because baptism is three things. Baptism is beginning grace, celebrating grace, and experiencing grace. The reason why I call it beginning grace is because all throughout the Bible, read the book of Acts in specific, there's always someone gives their lives to Jesus and automatically they get baptized. Someone repents before the Lord and they automatically get baptized. This is, in the book of, this is why in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 4, the Bible calls baptism the baptism of repentance, meaning that if you truly repent, you're going to want to get baptized. Now, it's important that we know that baptism for Christians, Protestants, baptism is not one thing that you do to get saved. That's another religion. Baptism for Christians is what we do because we have been saved. At the same time, baptism is celebrating grace. We publicly celebrate that we have died and resurrected with Jesus. You don't get to baptize yourself, you know. Oh, baptize. That's, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> baptism is a public celebration. That we, that we died and resurrected with Jesus. Romans chapter 6, Titus chapter 3. It's a celebration in which everyone is involved. Not just the people that are getting baptized, but the people that get to be witness of the power of the gospel. And baptism is also experiencing grace. 
because it's an experience for the person that is getting baptized. And for the rest of us, it's a reminder that we were there once, that we were sinful people as well, and the Lord saved us. We died and resurrected with him. You know, the way I explain it, it's almost like when you go to a wedding and the people that are getting married are experiencing it for the first time. That only happens once, by the way. You get baptized once and that's it. But the rest of us that are witnessing the wedding, we remember the day that we got married, hopefully in a positive way. <laughs> once again, we remember, we celebrate and we experience grace when we have baptisms. And today, we get to have a party together. Amen? I want you to watch this video. Hi, my name is Adeline Sleeper, and today I'm going to get baptized. Because once I learned that baptism is telling everyone I'm a Christian, I wanted to um, be baptized. My name is Rita. I'm a member of the Wheaton Bible Church Cry Fellowship. I am getting baptized today because I want to follow Jesus the rest of my life. My name is Neb Hood. I'm a member of WBC's Cry Fellowship. My faith in Christ that he is Lord and Savior who died for my sin has brought me here to be baptized. My name is Holly Hood. I am a member of WBC Khmer Fellowship. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm happy to be baptized today. My name is Isabel Seaboy. Today, I'm getting baptized because I want to follow God and put on the clothes of Christ. Hi, I am Lucas and I want to get baptized because I want everyone to know that I am a follower of Jesus. Hola, mi nombre es Ivonne López y estoy emocionada de decirles que hoy me van a bautizar y estoy emocionada porque quiero anunciar a todos que Jesús es mi Señor y Salvador. Hola, mi nombre es Ana Fariñas y me siento muy feliz y emocionada al saber que voy a sellar una nueva vida con Jesucristo por medio del bautizo. Grace Leiva y yo me bautizo como muestra de mi deseo de caminar y crecer con Cristo. Hola, mi nombre es Marta Nájera. Estoy muy emocionada de ser bautizada y compartir con todos ustedes que amo a Jesús y declaro que Él es mi único Salvador. Hi, my name is Benny. In declaration of my love for Jesus, I've chosen to be baptized today in acceptance of Him as my Lord and Savior. Hello, my name is Anthony Chan. I am a member of WBC Cry Christian Fellowship. I am excited to be baptized today because I want to repent and follow in God. My name is Emily Pinnis. I'm a member of Wheaton Bible Church's Khmer Fellowship. And today I'm getting baptized because I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I want to take our relationship a step further. Hola, mi nombre es Denis Olorio. El día de hoy me voy a bautizar en obediencia a Dios. Y el agradecimiento por el amor que me tiene. Él sin merecerlo me rescató, me perdonó y me justificó en nombre de su amado Hijo, mi Rey y Salvador, Jesús. Hola, mi nombre es Javier Solorio. Me siento privilegiado de ser escogido por Dios y con mi bautizo quiero dar testimonio de fe hacia Cristo como mi Rey y Salvador. My name is Mary Clickus and I'm getting baptized today because Jesus saved me and I'm excited to take the next step in my faith. I'm Charles Sanchez and I'm getting baptized today because I'm ready to take the next step of my faith. 
Hi, my name is Jonathan Crone, and I want to get baptized to show how much I love Jesus and how much I want to pledge my life to Him. My name is Emma, and the reason I am getting baptized today is because I wanted to show everyone that I am a child of God. Hello, my name is Gabriel Gonzalez, and I'm getting baptized today to celebrate and proclaim my love for my Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Dorcas. I'm from Africa. I love Jesus and I want him to change my life. My name is Gloria Lucusa. I'm part of the African French community. Uh, I want to get baptized because I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save my life. And I want to walk in Jesus. Church, I'm going to ask for another amen on all these testimonies. Can we just praise God for what's about to happen? This is so fun, and may God get all the glory, right? So to start us off today, I'm here with Isabel Seaford, and she's joined by her dad, Toby. And Isabel, uh, as you shared on the video, uh, but I'll ask you again, is it your testimony that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Amen. So, Isabel, your dad and I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And we're joined by Isabel's older sister, Adeline. And Adeline, I have the same question for you. Is it your testimony today in front of your church family that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Amen. So your dad and I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Church family, this is Jonathan. He's one of our fifth graders, and he's joined by his mom, Denise. Jonathan, is it your testimony today that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Well, then your mom and I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. some high schoolers today, which is so exciting. This is Zion Campos and his father, Frank Campos. Zion just has such a heart for the Lord. It is so evident. So Zion, I just have one question for you today. Is it your testimony to, in front of your church family that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Yes. All right, well, based on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
This is Charles Sanchez and his father, Jose Sanchez. Charles, I have one question for you, all right? I love how high I'm looking up right now. Usually I'm the one that's tall. Is it your testimony in front of your church family that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? It is, yes. Well, Charles, I'm so happy because based on your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Mary Clickus. Mary's another one of our high schoolers. She's a senior this year. And then this is her father, Mike Clickus. Mary, is it your testimony in front of your church family that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Yes. All right, well, Mary, based on your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is Benny Vang and his wife, Nina. Benny, I have one question for you. Is it your testimony in front of your church family that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? It is, yes. Well, based on your profession of faith, we are so joyful to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Good morning, church family. It's my joy to introduce you to Emma and to her dad, Bill Brown. Um, Emma, in front of your awesome church family, is it your testimony that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Yes. Awesome. And I've seen that in you so much. It is my joy and my privilege and your dad's privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Savior, I do. On the basis of your confession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
So Holly, do you follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So on the basis of your confession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes, I do. Upon your confession of faith? Yes. We now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. your Lord and Savior. Yes, Upon your confessions, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Somita, do you believe Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes, I do. Upon your confessions, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Upon your confession of faith, I'm going to baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes, I do. Upon your confession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody, we give the Lord a round of applause again.
can you see what the gospel of grace does? Can you see how powerful it is to have a God that cares for his people? Can you see how powerful it is that he, he, he dies with people, resurrects with people? Can you see how powerful it is that we have a God that loved us so much that didn't leave us as we were? That's why we need to celebrate communion. That's why we need to celebrate baptism. And that's why you need to get baptized if you haven't been baptized and you consider yourself to be a Christian. I guarantee you, you will never regret that day. That day, for those of us that have been baptized, mark your new identity, your new beginning, your new life. Amen? There's a second means of grace that the Bible talks about, and it's communion. And I'm going to give you five things about communion. Five things. Look at here. Communion is sustaining grace, nourishing grace, restoring grace, hopeful grace, and the fellowship of grace. Here, communion is sustaining grace because it communicates that God already made a covenant with us. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we participate in communion, it's called the cup of the new covenant. You know why that's sustaining? Because it tells you that it doesn't matter what you have done if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you will do today, tomorrow, or next year. God has made a covenant with you, and he will not let you go. That this is not a contract relationship in which you're standing before him depends on your behavior. It's that God has made a covenant with you, and he does not walk away until he takes you home. That's what we celebrate in communion. We also call communion nourishing grace because we remember and we feed ourselves by remembering that, God, that, God's, uh, that Jesus' body was already broken and his, body and his blood was already shed. And if that is true, we also feed in our soul with the reality that there is no condemnation for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Did you know that every time we participate in communion, we remember that we have been forgiven and that nothing can take that away from you. Communion is also known as restoring grace. It causes us to examine ourselves. It's an invitation that we repent before the Lord. If there's anything that we need to do, uh, that we need to bring before the Lord, we, we could do it. It's restoring because it fixes, in a way, it gives us a health perspective in our relationship with God. And at the same time, it calls us to have uh, a relationship with others. Come back to that in a second. Communion is also called, called hopeful grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says that whenever we participate in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you know that when we participate in communion, we are telling ourselves, remembering what the Bible already said, that one day Jesus will come back to fix everything that is broken. That one day we're going to get to have another feast with our Savior in which there is no sin. We get to remember that, that the best is yet to come. 
We get to celebrate that the ugly things and painful things here will go away. We get to remember and celebrate that at the end of the day, God always wins. And communion is also called the fellowship of grace. See, communion is one of those things that we do with one another. Communion is a family meal, you know. You don't get to do this by yourself. Communion is when the gathered churches, we break the bread and we drink the juice together as a family. And together we experience fellowship with one another. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 reminds us that we also have fellowship or partake, participate with Jesus. The interesting thing about the word participate there is that it's the word koinonia, fellowship. It tells us that Jesus does not turn into the bread and Jesus does not turn into the Jews. But it tells us that in a very real and supernatural way, Jesus is present with his church, feasting together, remembering what he did, being impacted by what he did, having fellowship with one another and having fellowship with him. I hope you already know that this fellowship, this communion, this feast is for Christians. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. And we need this because we still need the grace that we already received. But if you haven't, put your, your place, you, have, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is an opportunity for you to come to him. This is an invitation for you to take up the life that he offers to you. This is an invitation that he calls you to have a relationship with him. So all you have to do is surrender your life to him, give your life to him, accept him as a Lord and Savior, and then participate. But if you're not ready yet, it's okay. But know that the Lord has a place in his table for you. And he will wait until you're ready. All you have to do is respond. Now, before participating, the Bible calls us once again to examine ourselves. So we're going to give you a few seconds for you to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind anything that you need, you might need to repent of, someone that you need to forgive, or the forgiveness that you have to receive. Let's spend a few seconds there with the Lord. As we get ready to participate in this means of grace, I'm going to ask you to hold your cup and remove the side of the cup that has the bread on it. And the Bible reminds us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We may participate. 
Now you might want to flip the cup. This is cool. Now remove the second cover. And listen to what the Lord said. After supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may participate. Lord, we pray that just as these elements enter into our system, your sustaining grace, your nourishing grace, your restoring grace, your hopeful grace, and the fellowship of grace becomes a reality to us. Lord, we are trusting that when we do this, you are here with us. I pray, Lord, for those of us that are here, that are not ready yet to come to you. But that I pray, Lord, that the only reason why they're here is because you are interested in them. And you do have a place in your table for them. May they respond and experience this indescribable, ever-powerful, ever-present grace of God. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...